The Committee on Ministerial Care of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is pleased to present this webinar on Lessons from an Ordinary Pastor, an interview with D.A. Carson. Our host is John Hartley, an OPC minister and pastor of Apple Valley Presbyterian Church in Nina, Wisconsin. John also serves as a member of the Committee on Ministerial Care. Hello, my name is John Hartley, and on behalf of the Committee on Ministerial Care, welcome to our quarterly webinar. My guest today is Dr. D.A. Carson, Emeritus Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is a highly respected theologian, a sought-after conference speaker, and has authored more than 50 books. Dr. Carson grew up in a pastor's home and significant to our conversation today, in 2008, Crossway published his book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. I would encourage our viewers and listeners to note the special offer at the end of our broadcast for you to receive a copy of this profoundly encouraging book. Dr. Carson, welcome, and thank you for being here today for this discussion. Thank you for having me. I'm very eager to talk about your book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor and the Life and Reflections of Your Father, Tom. There's a quote I really appreciate at the end of the book, page 147, that helps really set this up. You said, Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures but hundreds of people testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there is no text that says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you are good administrators. Dr. Carson, what is an ordinary pastor? Well, my, the reason for my choice of that title is uh, that there is a tendency in North America, it's not universal, but it's pretty broad, to um, applaud uh, pastors and others, for that matter, who excel in, in celebrity qualities. Mm. And uh, if that's the mark of... Uh, significance of greatness of uh, of uh, modeling and so on uh, then then my father just didn't qualify um, the gifts and graces he showed as a christian uh, are the gifts and graces that ordinary pastors um, can do and must display um, and and I, I wanted those values to show up, to uh, to be placarded before the reader. Um, this is not to despise or to deprecate those who are given peculiar gifts. Um, the Lord does raise up a raise up a George Whitfield or whomever, mm. uh, but but most of us are not George Whitfield, and um, and. In, in that sense, the things that made my father significant as a Christian pastor were ordinary things. 
as the world counts ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, but but altogether they constituted Christian life, Christian maturity, Christian grace. And I I wanted to to placard that. Mm-hmm. My father, if he had lived to read the book, would have been embarrassed to tears over it. <laughs> but that's all right. I waited until he had gone to glory. <laughs> now, you said something in there about our our climate tends to point to those who are experts, who are especially gifted. When we hear the phrase ordinary pastor in this current anti-expert age, we might hear the phrase ordinary pastor as saying, be opposed, look, look down on the exceptionally gifted pastor. Um, be the ordinary pastor. You don't need those those people who are quite skilled. How does the ordinary pastor guard his heart against being an anti-expert, anti-intellectual? Well, how does he benefit from those special pastors, special preachers, while being content with his ordinariness? Well, as in so many areas of life, one can sin by falling off the bridge this side or that side. Um, one can be arrogant because one does have certain special gifts. But one can be arrogant precisely because one does not. Uh, in both cases, it's a form of arrogance. Mm-hmm. So um, one has to guard the heart and remember that whatever we do that endures for time and eternity is done by the grace of God in us. Um and and then leave the rest to God. At the end of the day, God alone keeps the books. Uh, and, uh, and and so I, I wouldn't want the title to be uh, a secret excuse for a negative arrogance. Mm-hmm. Uh, arrogance can come in many different forms. Um, I'm more humble than you are. Mm-hmm. Is is uh, just as ugly and as sinful as. I am better than you are. Mm-hmm. Very good. There's a section in your book where you talk about the Drummondville, the Drummondville affair, the uh, problem that revolved around the purchase of a building that your father uh, would be the pastor in. And it raised a very interesting uh, conundrum for how does a pastor talk about his opponents at home? Let me read to you uh, what your sister Joyce wrote that's in the book. As I look back on life with mom and dad, perhaps the one thing I recall most vividly is the memory that I don't have. Try as I might, I cannot recollect one time when either of them spoke negatively about another person. And then later in the book, you say, Tom was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer list. Um, Dr. Carson, can you talk about the household climate of regard and honor for the reputation of others that your father maintained? The, The most telling measure of that reality, I think, is the fact that I didn't realize it was there. Because I didn't know anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, 
obviously I was brought up in a home where we were not permitted to uh, downplay people and, and say negative things about them and be poisonous and so on. But but the truth of the matter is we we didn't witness such poison from my parents. I remember um, the time when some of the details of the political situation that, that you briefly referred to um, came up because of where I was studying and I, I, I was hearing stories that I hadn't heard. And both my father and my mother eventually were cajoled into telling me more of what had happened. Um, but but even where they came to the place where they thought I needed to know more about what had happened, it, it was with extreme reluctance. Mm. It, it was not as if, well, finally, I can finally tell our kids what went on. There was no scoring of points. And um, with respect to the great preacher that was involved, um, I heard my parents spontaneously many times talk about his great preaching and this sermon and that sermon and so on. Um, whereas uh, an, another person might well have slid in several negative evaluations on the side. Mm-hmm. It just it wasn't wasn't their way of doing things. And and because I didn't see any other way of doing things, I thought that was just the Christian way. It, it, it wasn't until much later when I had lived a little more myself uh, that mm-hmm. I could reflect on how privileged I was to be brought up in a family like that. Mm. So an ordinary pastor may not turn out to be the great preacher, but he can turn out to be great in discretion, right? Yes, obviously I was using the term ordinary in a purposely ambiguous way. Mm -hmm. Um, Ordinary in the sense that he was not a highly gifted man, Mm -hmm. as people count giftedness, Um, but not ordinary in the sense that he was a man of remarkable Christian maturity. In that sense, he wasn't ordinary at all. Uh, mm-hmm. But I meant the, right. the the title to have a certain ambiguity built into it. So you have been a son of the manse, growing up in a pastor's house. What would you advise for how pastor father and pastor's wife, mother, how do they shield, how, sh- how much should they shield the children from the crises and the characters of the church? Quite a lot. There are enough uh, pressures in bringing up a, a, a family of children. There are enough pressures in public life, mm-hmm. enough pressures in the ministry. Uh, there are enough bad things that happen that um, the children are going to come across those things sooner or later in any case. But part of protecting children is protecting them from seeing too much public evil, especially public evil that has seeped its way into the church. Um, that doesn't mean you want to hide your kids from reality. But the line between hiding your kids from reality and thus in some ways hiding them too much mm. and on the other hand letting too much out so that no matter how hard you try you end up scoring points and uh, putting people down uh, to avoid that kind of thing and uh, and seek the 
the integrity of scripture's emphasis on speaking the truth in love and uh, and so on um, is is sometimes a delicate balance mm-hmm. but it's a balance i think that they hit remarkably well i want to talk with you about your father's feelings of inferiority as our, as you describe it in the mm-hmm. book um, to kind of set this up, you give us this important historical notation that between 1950 and 1952, Baptist ministers in French Quebec spent a total of eight years in jail for preaching the gospel. And then on, on page 68, you write how this pressed upon your father's uh, sense of inferiority. Quote, Some of the other workers gained a certain cachet, either because of their superlative prayer letters or because they had endured prison time. It was not Tom's nature to indulge in the former, and he was spared the latter. Never in our hearing, and certainly not in his papers, did Tom express any jealousy of or malice toward other ministers who seemed to be eclipsing him. But whether he realized it or not, the way was being paved to generate in him a feeling of inferiority with which he would wrestle for the rest of his life. Compared with some of the more dramatic turns around him, his ministry was ordinary. Now, you you wrote this about your father. Could you explain um, how his feelings of inferiority impacted his life as a pastor? I suspect that most people would have been unaware of such feelings. Memoirs. Um, if, if you have such feelings, it's possible to parade them in order to attract a bit of sympathy mm-hmm. or to project an image of how your particular call to ministry has been strategically difficult. Um, and he, he just wasn't one to go along those sorts of lines. He, he was in many ways quite a private man. That's part of it too. It's, it's a personality matter. But there are some ministers who have the, the ability to talk about their ministry in such a way that without overtly boasting, you nevertheless hear the overtones of overt boasting. What, what can I say? We all know people like that. Um, but that just wasn't dad's way. When, a few more English language pastors, sometimes from the U.S., sometimes from Eastern, Western Canada, uh, moved into French Canada, had to learn the language and, and start planting churches and so mm-hmm. on in French. S- some of them were clearly very gifted at writing prayer letters and requests for support and th- mm-hmm. this sort of thing and made the whole of their ministry sound exciting and um, adventuresome. Mm-hmm. And courageous and, 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 and so on. And I'm, I'm sure they meant well by it, but those of us who know this, knew the situation particularly well, knew that there was another, another side. Let me, let me put it this way. There were, mm-hmm. I didn't say this in the book, but there were, mm-hmm. there were two or three gifted men. They were related to each other who, whose strongest gift was portraying something of the French work to English language churches and raising money. But when you went to their churches, 
um, after they'd been there for five years, six years, eight years, and they had published all of these reports about what exciting things the Lord was doing. You, 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 you came into a service of five people. There, there was a tendency to overblow success and to remain less than candid, let's mm. put it that way, mm-hmm. about the failures and the ups and downs and the discouragements in the, of those days. And um, Dad just wasn't tempted along those lines. You never got the stories of humongous success. You never got desperate discouragement. Mm. It, it it was slow and steady, plug along and be faithful. In one set of frameworks, that that's quite ordinary. Mm-hmm. In another sort of framework, um, it's an extraordinary response. Mm-hmm. So you found you found out some of these things in his journals, where he yeah. wrote out his heart and kept it, kept them private. Yes, but kept them before the Lord. Yeah, is. Was this like a thorn in the flesh from the Lord that actually was a grace to him in that it carried his soul to the throne of grace more often, more ardently? More ardently than? Than if he were cocksure, confident. It could be, but I I, I want to be careful because because to to make comparisons between what God... what. God did and and produced in Tom's life. Mm-hmm. Um, one asks comparison with what? With what God might have done in Tom's life if he had another personality, mm-hmm. or if he had had a ministry that was of unglowing, uh, unceasing, glowing success. Um, who knows if that would have made Dad more ebullient? I I, I don't know. I, I don't know, and in one sense, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I reflect on the the dad who was there. Mm-hmm, right. Now to stay on this for another moment, on page eighty-seven, you write, Tom goes on to survey his life through stunningly negative filters. He recalls how hard and honorably he worked before he went to seminary, when his employer was MetLife, but since then he averse he has simply not been as faithful. At seminary, he claims he did not work as hard as he might have, partly because he broke up with a young woman and was badly distracted emotionally. He never finished his degree program at seminary. In those days, it required a thesis, and this he never finished. And then he says, Tom says, I finally felt, though at first I had not, that here God wanted me. I came, stayed in circumstances that severely tried me, and many others. Dr. Shields commented that I want, that what I wanted was a nice home. Sometimes I wonder, oh God, vile and full of sin I am. His assessment of these Drummondville years is just as bleak, but I have accomplished nothing, he, he writes. I had not the missionary spirit, nor the evangelist passion. He then proceeds to list the numbers of homes he has not yet visited. So this is all kept in his journal, mm-hmm. not spilling out of his mouth around the kitchen. And he's a wonderful example to us in that privacy. Um, but here's my question about it. We can see how gloominess is hard on an ordinary pastor. 
But are there ways in which this gloominess is normal or even necessary for a pastor? Because we serve the man of sorrows. It's one of those um, areas, I think, which um, can be read in different ways. Both of us, I'm sure, have read enough biographies of Christian men and women across the centuries uh, who uh, battled depression or fought off um, arrogance or evaluated others' gifts and ministries, uh, whether to have a more accurate reflection of their own or for whatever reason. There's nothing wrong, it seems to me, of trying to understand what Dad went through, partly because he did record it all in his own journals. I'm, I'm, I'm not making something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to report faithfully within the bounds of courtesy and respect and thanksgiving and so on, uh, what it meant, what it looked like, what it felt like to him. But having said that, I'm again suspicious of attempts to make a final evaluation mm-hmm. of, 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 that, of that. I mean, I, I, I could see that somebody might uh, reflect for a while on dad's tendency toward self-abnegation uh, and uh, discouragement, uh, produce nothing in his Drummondville years. Well, he was there 15 and a half years and... Uh, there was a bilingual church there when he was finished. It mm-hmm. was not a big church. It wasn't a strong church, but it was a church. Mm-hmm. But but his self-abnegation was never self-pitying. It, it, it was the mark of a man who who knew that whatever he had done or not done ha- had been done by the grace of God. Temperamentally, spiritually, he was not of the sort that would have looked at marks of grace in his life and use them as a motive for self-congratulation. He just didn't (laughs) think in those terms. Um, And and I shall always be grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, If if somebody comes along and says in retrospect, perhaps he should have been a little more explicitly grateful to provide a model of gratitude in hard times or something, perhaps. But who gets that balance right all the time? Mm-hmm. I, I don't. And um, what he did portray, reflect, and so on, in retrospect, was extremely important to me as I grew older and tried to fit things into biblical models of, 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 of diverse kinds of faithfulness. It's tempting to think that honor would require you to write a hagiography of your father uh, where everything was roses and berries in, in a way you've you've honored him by telling the truth about him and you've let ordinary pastors see themselves in another servant of their same master where where gloominess is in their own life. Um, how how does the ordinary pastor push away 
the temptation to write his own hagiography about himself in his mind? Uh, how does he say it's okay to let my weakness uh, be known even, um, perhaps to my elders, to my wife? It's, how does he how does he resist the temptation to to keep everything roses and berries? He and my mother were very close. Uh, they didn't hide much from each other as far as I can tell. Um, and that was undoubtedly a, a great strength for both of them. The temptation towards self-promotion is so endemic in Western culture mm -hmm. that I suspect it's a much greater danger than the temptation to self-pity. In, in, in retrospect, I've had more time, even since writing that book, um, to reflect on things where Dad showed remarkable courage and boldness. Uh, don't forget, this, this, this was a, a pretty dangerous time mm -hmm. in French Canada in the early 50s. At one point, he decided that it was so hard to get people in. They, they, they would put up a sound system and have outside services. And um, it, it, it was, by today's standard, all very primitive and, and simple. And um, But you could see people walking the streets around, listening in. And then we got visited by the police. Um, disturbing the peace, you can't do all that. But Dad had thought that one through. And just down the hill from where we lived, there was an outdoor pool with a sound system that played just about every evening. And so Dad's response to the police was, I'll tell you what, I'll kill our sound system if you kill the one at the pool. In my mind, that's him standing up for being a Roman. Mm. But that, that could pull that off too, although temperamentally he was not a confrontationalist. Mm -hmm. But he could pull that off once he saw that something mm. um, was worth fighting for and had a, a biblical principle. I don't mean all about sw swimming pools, but all about justice in a society that was ruled by law. Right. Um, uh, he, he, he could take quite a number of, of important, complex, faithful decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I've written quite a number of books, of course, and they're, they're, they're highly diverse. Some are technical and so on. I am quite sure, I've never done a count, but I'm quite sure I have had more people thank me for that little book on my dad mm. than most of all of the rest of them put together. Mm. Uh, which, which means it clearly is scratching where somebody's itching. Mm -hmm. Um, because there are a lot more pastors out there who wrestle with discouragement, sometimes even despair, than there are who are patting themselves on the back and, and being self-promoting. Mm. The, the latter group, we, we get to know. They, they stand out. Mm -hmm. um, the former group, you may never see. And in one sense, my little book about my dad was an effort to make sure those people are seen. Mm. Well, that brings us to sort of the... The, the summary that you put in the middle of the book for why you have written it. And on page 91, mid-book, you write, quote, The longer I have spent getting to know pastors in many small and medium-sized churches and some large ones, 
the more I have become aware of the chasms of discouragement through which many of them pass. The reasons for such discouragement are many, but some of them at least overlap with Tom's self-doubt, guilty conscience, sense of failure, long hours, and growing frustration with apparent fruitfulness. And then right after that, you list four things that are foundational lessons that you would like your readers to think on. And number one, and if you would speak to each one of these uh, somewhat briefly, we got four here. Number one, you said, Tom's erroneous perspective was anything less than working all the time was letting down the people and the Lord. So you were, you're warning off pastors with that comment. Well, he belonged to a generation that had been through the Great Depression and, and uh, other challenges and so on. So that there's no doubt he was a workaholic. Um, and I'm not trying to justify that. I, I don't want to say it's better to be a workaholic than to be lazy, but probably it is. Mm-hmm. And in any case, uh, uh, there are different reasons for being a workaholic. Um, one can be a workaholic simply because one wants to project an image of always being busy because that shows people how important I am. Mm-hmm. That's indefensible. But there are some reasons for wanting to be a workaholic because the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And you are praying that the Lord will send more workers into the harvest field. Um, life is complex. And labels like workaholism are at very least open to abuse. Mm-hmm. They can mean different things in different personality contexts. The second item you list there, you say so many aspects of ministry demand excellence and there are not enough hours in the day to be excellent in all of them. Could you speak to that advice? You can be a very good, hardworking plumber for eight or nine hours a day. But at the end of the day, you clock out. You, there are not many plum, plumbers that spent entire evenings uh, uh, contemplating all the plumbing they're going to do tomorrow hmm. or what did I not do exactly right today? I mean, I'm sure there's some of that in any in any trade. Mm-hmm. But but there's something about the ministry that never gives you time off. So that if you budget so many hours for preparation of a particular sermon or for visiting people in hospital or for doing street evangelism or whatever, there's always, always, always more to do. Always. And that's true for not only the pastoral ministry, but for all kinds of of um, professional employment. But it's it's compounded in the case of uh, Christian pastoral ministry, precisely because the the framework in which this is working out is 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 eternal. It's it's so important. Um, I was reading rereading a, a biography by Elizabeth Elliot recently, reminded again of Jim Elliot's famous line, um, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Mm-hmm. And that hangs over all serious Christians mm-hmm. and um, and can become a, quote, spiritual reason for 
being a workaholic. Mm-hmm. So, um, as I read the biography of Calvin, for example, I sometimes think that Calvin would have lived longer and wielded wider influence if he hadn't worked quite so hard during the last 10 years of his life. Mm. Does that make him wrong? Well, it makes me in no position to judge him. But life is complex when it comes to these kinds of things. And and to, um, to, to, to realize that very good, ordinary pastors put in long hours because they're pressed by the lostness of men and women, because they're pressed by the urgent need to make the gospel known. I mean, whereas somebody else might have looked at the town of Romanville and thought, I have shared the gospel here with X thousands of people. And others would look at the same data and say, there's so many thousands here that I haven't managed to share the gospel with yet. Mm-hmm. That would be in the latter group, mm-hmm. always. So there's a there's a great danger of laying a formula or a template Correct. over a pastor's life and Correct. saying, oh, he, it's he too, doesn't fit. It's too complex. Yes, amen. The third uh, golden nugget of wisdom you have in this section, you say, I must learn to accept myself not because of my putative successes, but because of the merits of God's son. And you are thinking of your father when you say that. Yes. You're thinking of all ministers. Yes. And it's, it's something, uh, I've learned just as a Christian preacher of the gospel. Mm-hmm. If you really are sold up to the gospel, that's the way you're going to think of things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is being recorded a few months after, um, the home going of Tim Keller. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of Tim Keller's great insights in the gospel was the importance of living all the time by grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was very good at getting that across in a, a city like New York where um, promotion and self-esteem and, and strength and so on are regularly projected. Mm-hmm. Even in his uh, closing weeks and months, he, he wanted people to understand that Nothing was happening to him but what God had given, what God sanctioned. And therefore, it was for God's glory Mm -hmm. and for our good. And I can live with that. That attitude is is part of being sold out for the gospel, it seems to me. The fourth item and final one on this list that you have in, in your book takes a little bit longer to read. Not much. Quote, Mum's maxim should be posted on the mirrors of most ministers. Work hard and play hard, but never confuse the two. Mm-hmm. By this, she wanted us to know that while we were working, working, we should not fritter away the hours by squeezing in distractions and various kinds of play. The result would be poor work combined with guilt feelings for a job poorly done. Similarly, when we were playing, We were not supposed to be thinking about work because that would dilute some of the regenerative value of downtime. But dad never learned mom's simple maxim. (laughs) Could you speak to that? Yeah, it's something that is probably even more urgent today than in dad's years or when I wrote the book. Um, 
because there are so many distracting devices and uh, mm-hmm. habits and so on. So many is the high schooler, for example, who who is playing music on a sound system, blaring in his or her ears, uh, maybe keeping one eye on a TV screen. Um, every once in a while pausing whatever else they're doing to send off an email and so on. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they're doing their homework. Mm-hmm. And what I guarantee is they have not learned the power, the intellectual power of concentration, mm. of doing one thing at a time well. Um it's it's not denying that there are some things that can be done two or three at a time. Yes, 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 yes. But there is something wise about the simple act maxim from my mother. Work hard and then play hard. Mm-hmm. And especially if you are hoping to um, gain in intellectual and emotional and relational power. Uh, it's too simple, but do one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of your mother, she came down with Alzheimer's eventually, mm. the last seven, eight nine, years, nine, nine years of her nine. life. Um, what did you see in your father as he shifted into the years of care for her? He was the one who had leaned on her for most household things. But of course, he was now taking over. Um she was better than he was at uh, looking after the books. She was better than he was in all kinds of domestic things. But of course, he had to take over increasingly. By this time, he was slowing down at the level of his own energies. What I never heard once was a complaint. I don't remember any time where he said something like, well, she's not the woman I married. Or... Um, this is going to put a kibosh on my ministry, isn't it? Mm. Or there, 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 I cannot remember even the hint of self-pity or making it all about him. Uh, it was always instead, um, what a privilege God has given me to, to, to use my, my senior years to look after her. Mm. I think that the three of us kids, um, all very different in, in many, many ways, but all of us gained that lesson from mom and dad in their senior years of, uh, how you, how you treat your parents, your spouse, as the case may be, with patience, with respect, with thanksgiving, um, that there's just no excuse whatsoever for self-pity in that sort of, sort of environment. Mm. Now, at the end of the book, at this point, your father is almost 80. And in his journal, he prays that God would keep him from the sins of old men, Mm -hmm. some of which are listed. A tendency to gravitate toward watching television, the temptation to look backward instead of forward, sliding toward self-pity, easy resentment of young men. And then he writes, develop a se- develop as a senior a prayer ministry. God has given you the time for it. <laughs> That's on page 143. Now, 
did being an ordinary pastor help your father be an ordinary Christian? Yes. Here he is, concerned about sin at the end of his mm-hmm. life. And he recognizes that he has not the power within him. He must ask his father. How did being an ordinary pastor what I appreciated, I mean, that was taken right from his journals. Mm-hmm. I didn't, that, that wasn't my editorial comment on it. And, um, if you had asked anybody in the church at that point, the local church them. at that point, what sins should a Christian be especially concerned with in their old age? And how is Tom Carson fighting them off? They, they would have looked at you as if you were nuts. I mean, um, Tom, Tom Carson at that stage of his life was, was, was up there with the saints. He was held in very high regard. Hmm. There's some people who, when my book came out, thought that I had, had dishonored dad by passing on some of his own reflections of life and, hmm. and, and, and harshness and so on. In retrospect, I don't think I got that wrong. I think I got that right. Mm-hmm. But what was so interesting was, to see how dad was still engaged in the regular disciplines of self-examination and private confession of sin and new resolution to press on toward God's well-done, good and faithful servant uh, on the last day. He, He wasn't saying because his energy was so much less, he couldn't do so many things. Therefore, he could take time off, as it were, from being a Christian. Um, He tried to spend a little more time with his grandchildren. Um, My sister, my brother's died now, but my sister and I have have, uh, often confessed that in some ways dad was a... He he was a good father, but he was an excellent grandfather. man who... How does a theology of the cross, the heart of the gospel help an ordinary pastor endure? A lot will depend on what a person means by the theology of the cross. The people in the evangelical reformed heritage at one level are bound by virtue of their uh, confessions uh, to buy into a theology of the cross. But sometimes the focus is so strongly on what Christ did on the cross, making sure we get penal substitution right and things mm-hmm. like that, that um, that we haven't reflected adequately on texts that say, take up your cross and follow me. There is a way of thinking about suffering and endurance and perseverance and um, an eternal perspective and even what it means to sing, this world is not my home, Hmm. Uh, to meditate on one Peter and what it means to belong to a a sojourning people that don't finally belong here. Hmm. Hmm. Um, There's a way of thinking all of those things as part of the overflow of, the entailment of, the theology of the cross. Um, And the more you get that one right, it seems to me, the more the more you see your call to living and service, your call to suffering and perseverance and so on, mm-hmm. are all tied to Jesus hanging on a cross. Mm. 
And now you're to take up your cross and follow him. The more you are going to be stable and refuse to let your self-identity, your self-understanding, your self-perception be shaped by the standards of this world. And the more you're going to view suffering itself in a damned world as a privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like a copy of Dr. Carson's book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, and if you act prior to February 29, 2024, Crossway has graciously offered either a free ebook or the print version at 50% off the normal retail price plus free shipping. To take advantage of either of these, please visit www.crossway.org backslash P-L-U-S. There you can sign up for a free Crossway Plus account. When ordering Dr. Carson's book, please use code MEM50, that is all capital letters, Mike, Echo, Mike, and the numerals 50. May the Lord richly bless you in your ministry.